0: be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I myself have bringing waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, we all knew that this was coming. But as we followed the early history of mankind, things have gone from bad to worse here in chapter six. So bad, in fact, that God is about to judge the Earth with a global flood that will kill all but eight people. And as we look at the text before us this morning, uh, there are two preliminary subjects that I intend to briefly touch on to begin with. They're here in the text. We need to deal with them. They are not the main point of this passage. But we do need to deal with them because they help to set the stage for the main point Of the chapter. So the first one is found right here in verses one through four, which Brian alluded to this morning in CLA. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh." Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, as Brian indicated in CLA, there are differing opinions on how to interpret this passage. In fact, as I studied this week, I came across at least five different interpretations What does it mean by sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? What about these giants? So there are multiple different interpretations of the passage. It doesn't matter which interpretation you take. The text is still serving the same purpose in setting the stage for the main point of the chapter. But it is an interesting conundrum. What does it mean? Some believe that the sons of God is a reference to fallen angels. Uh, That phrase is used that way in the book of Job, twice to refer to angels, and so they believe that this means that demons, fallen angels, had relations with human women and gave birth to a race of giants. Others believe that it is simply referring to the line of Seth, the godly line, intermarrying with the line of Cain. That seems to be the majority opinion amongst Reformed scholars from Augustine to Calvin to R.C. Sproul. Those are the two most popular views. I ended up with a different view as I studied this. There are things to recommend both of those views, but I had problems with both of them. The strength of the first one, that this is fallen angels, is that it tries to make sense of verse 4. Giants, men of renown... What does that mean? How do we explain that? You might also have heard reference to the Nephilim. That's the Greek word that's translated giants in this passage. So we have to do something with that. It has to mean something. We can't ignore it. That's the weakness, I believe, of saying it's just the line of Seth intermarrying with the line of Cain. Why would that result in giants? Why would that result in men of renown? The problem with the fallen angel's view should be obvious. We have seen the principle in creation from chapter 1 even into chapter 6. Everything gives birth, produces seed, offspring, according to its kind. These are men. Chapter 3 makes that plain. My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. He's not a race of demigods that are half angel and half man, he is indeed flesh. These are men. Angels do not intermarry and have relations and produce offspring with humans. That's the stuff of Greek mythology, not of the scriptures. But we have to do something with verse 4. And so here is what I have arrived at in my thinking and this is actually a combination of two other views first of all in second samuel chapter 7 verse 14 god says of the king in this case david i will be his father and he shall be my son and in psalm 82 we have rulers of the earth referred to as gods i have said you are gods and all of you are children of the most high The context clearly shows there in Psalm 82 that the reference is to kings and rulers of this earth. And so the particular Baptist from the 17th century, Benjamin Keach, writes this, To men of imminent dignity and his substitutes on earth by whom God governs, judges, informs, and helps men, as if he had metaphorically called them divine men, the sons of God, are the principal sons and heroes of the patriarchs, in whose hands the chief authority was lodged and who in doctrine and example ought to go before others as the princes and heads of the people, as judges and princes are in other places of Scripture called gods. So Keech's view is that sons of God is a reference to rulers of the earth, those who stand in the place of God as judges over the people, And so these are rulers of the earth who should lead by example and govern with humility as God's representatives. And instead, they use their station and their authority to take the most beautiful women as wives for themselves of all whom they have chosen. So they are committing polygamy, as we had seen first in chapter uh, four with Lamech. And we will later see taken to an extreme with King Solomon. So there's this abuse of power as they commit mass polygamy and use their station and their authority to do all that they desire. And so they rule as tyrants rather than as godly rulers. I like this interpretation because it makes sense of the phrasing of verse 2, and it fits the context of the wickedness of man leading to the judgment in the flood. Verse five says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so we have mass polygamy, we have tyrants ruling and and doing all they desire and all of their will, but we still have to make sense of verse four. In his commentary on Genesis, Henry Morris suggests that the offspring of these unions, which are said to be giants and mighty men of renown, uh, are not the offspring of fallen angels interbreeding with humans, but rather seem to be uh, the unique and special offspring of humans that may have been selectively chosen Uh, in order to breed a race or an army of supermen that would foment rebellion against the Creator. He says, Since the angelic beings are of a different kind than men... And since sexual reproduction under normal genetic processes would not produce any unusually powerful or highly trained beings, the only solution remaining is that the angelic beings with their greater knowledge and abilities to control wicked men would possess and select both the men and the women necessary to build a race that would suit Lucifer's design of rebellion against God. So I would suggest... Further, that the mighty men, these offspring of these unions, were likely demon-possessed as well. Consider the description given of the demon-possessed man that Jesus meets in Mark chapter 5. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. So superhuman strength because of demon possession, combined with a selective breeding program, such as Morris suggests, and these are those who rule as Keech interpreted it. That appears to me to deal with all of the text, We have demon possession, we have giants, superhuman strength, men of renown, and they are ruling as tyrants and fomenting wickedness on the earth such that it is so pervasive that God has decided that a flood is necessary in judgment. Notice that verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now, compare that with the last time we are told that God saw something in chapter 1, verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So from very good to evil continually, God's good creation has been corrupted by sin. Marriage has been corrupted with polygamy. Instead of filling the earth with worshipers of Elohim, as Adam and Eve were supposed to do, they are filling it with the fruit of demonically influenced polygamous marriages in order to rebel against the creator and his ways. And instead of Adam ruling as a priest and a king under the authority of God, we have tyrants committing wicked acts in keeping with their own desires and evil hearts. The stage is set. For judgment in a major way. But there's one more preliminary issue that we have to deal with, and this is God's apparent reaction to the situation. We find this in verses six through eight. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, just a moment ago, before I read those verses, I called this God's apparent reaction. And I said that because it seems that God is reacting to the situation and changing his mind, experiencing regret, deciding to do something different than he had planned to do. It seems that way. But our confession says some things about God that would indicate this cannot be the case. First, our confession says in chapter two of God and the Holy Trinity, in paragraph two, in his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. So according to the confession, God couldn't have been caught off guard by the wickedness of man. He could not have been surprised by this. He knows it perfectly from the beginning. That means he knew that this wickedness would happen before he even created. He didn't have to change his plan to deal with it. In paragraph one of the same chapter, the confession says that God is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Now you'll notice the word immutable is used twice once in reference to God in and of himself and once in reference to his will. Immutable means unable to change. It is unchanging. So God's will is unchanging. He didn't, he didn't will one thing for his creation and then change his mind later in response to the acts of men. His will is the same yesterday, today, and forever forever. The confession isn't just making these doctrines up. The scriptures teach these things. Malachi chapter three, verse six says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God is speaking there directly concerning his own nature and says he does not change, he is immutable. What's more, earlier in paragraph one, of the same chapter, our confession asserts that God is without body, parts, or passions. That third word, passions, is the important one for us this morning. It means that God does not experience emotional change as we do. This doctrine is known as impassibility, unchanging. He doesn't fluctuate from love to hate, from happiness to sorrow. He's unchanging, unchanging. Entire books have been written on that phrase in the confession. One such book published by Reformed Baptist Academic Press is called Confessing the Impassable God, the biblical, classical, and confessional doctrine of divine impassibility. In the introduction to the book, James Renahan writes, it is our assertion that these words are of great significance and altering them or adjusting their meaning has serious consequences for both confessionalism and more importantly, the Christian faith itself. This is an important doctrine. But there are various theological camps that disagree and teach that God does experience change, both emotionally and in his knowledge, that he doesn't know all things that will be. And so open theisms or uh, process theology are two of those uh, theological camps that would say, no, when, when, when men became this wicked in Genesis chapter 6, God just found that out as it happened. He did experience emotional change in reaction to the actions of his creation. These are dangerous heresies. And unfortunately, in recent years, some otherwise solid biblical scholars have given ground to these ideas D.A. Carson and Bruce Ware have made dangerous concessions on these issues. In the words of Herman Bavink, those who predicate any change whatsoever of God, whether with respect to his essence, knowledge, or will, diminish all his attributes, independence, simplicity, eternity, omniscience, and omnipotence. This robs God of his divine nature and religion of its firm foundation and assured comfort. Well, we don't want to do that, so we need to get this straight. We must confess the biblical doctrine that God is immutable and impassable. But what, then, are we to do with a passage such as this? How do we understand it when it says that God was sorry, that He was grieved, that He repented or changed His mind? They seem to contradict other passages of Scripture, such as numbers 23:19 God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent John Owen offers us some help when he says it is agreed by all that those expressions of repenting grieving and the like are figurative wherein no such affections are intended as those words signify in created natures but only an event Of things like that which proceedeth from such affections. What he is saying is that when it says God repented, it doesn't mean that he changed his mind or that he experienced regret, but only that his actions that we can see, his visible outward actions, according to his predetermined and immutable will, resemble the sorts of actions that we would have if we repented. So, Reformed Baptist Pastor James Dolezal says the motive for such an interpretation is, in many respects, the same as the motive for denying that God is really possessed of physical body parts, even though Scripture quite freely attributes bodily features and functions to Him. So, when we read, "I myself will fight against you with an outstretched arm and with a, with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath." Jeremiah Jeremiah 21.5, God is speaking, but we know that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. Yes, Christ has a human body that he took on in the incarnation, but that's obviously not what Jeremiah is speaking about. The passage is speaking metaphorically of God's hand and his arm. And so theologians use a fancy word I'm going to teach you. It's called anthropomorphic. And it simply means that we are attributing to God human traits or characteristics. When we speak of God's arm or God's hand, we do the same thing uh, in other aspects of life. When we talk about the eye of a hurricane, a hurricane doesn't have an eye. We're using a human body part to describe what a hurricane looks like when viewed from above. looks like an eye with a pupil in the middle. That's an anthropomorphic description, and so we attribute these things to God by way of explanation. When we talk about God seeing his creation, as it says here in Genesis 6, or seeing the wickedness of men, that's anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have eyes, and yet he sees. So we describe him in a way that makes it more easy for us to understand. Similarly, when we speak of God repenting or grieving, That is anthropomorphic. It's describing something God is doing by means of a human trait or emotion in order to make it easier for us to understand. Verse 6 says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Well, we know that God doesn't have a physical heart. We know that even when we use this sort of language in reference to humans, that we don't mean that the physical organ inside our body is grieved. We mean that our inner person, our inner man, is grieved. So we understand that we're using that language metaphorically. Well, since God is not composed of parts, inner and outer, but is simply God, then not only does he not have a physical heart, we can't speak of his inner person as being separate from his outer person. And so we understand the phrase to be used metaphorically to teach us that God's actions resemble those that would flow from our experiencing grief. In Confessing the Impassable God, there's an entire chapter dealing with this passage in Genesis 6. The authors write one phrase being obviously anthropomorphic, the most natural interpretation of the whole clause would be that it is also anthropomorphic. It reflects God's disposition in such a way that we can readily comprehend. The verse says that God was sorry or grieved that he had made man. Well, surely God is not regretting his eternal decree to create. No, he knew from the beginning that man would turn to wickedness. He knew what would happen, so he is not grieved and regretting his previous actions. John Gill comments, there can no more be any uneasiness in his mind than a change in it. For God is a simple being, uncompounded and not subject to any passions and affections. This is said to observe his great hatred of sin and abhorrence of it. So God reveals his hatred towards sin in a way that helps us understand his change of action from preserving his creation to the destruction of it. See, God does not experience passions in the way that we do. He is love all the time. He always hates sin. If he fluctuated from one to the other, our existence would be precarious. But God always loves his people and he always hates sin And so the Scripture relates these things to us, though, in language that is intended to help us understand what God is doing and to instruct us as to what our actions ought to be. We ought to be grieved over our sin. We ought to abhor sin the way that God does. We ought to repent and turn from our sin, just as God's outward actions appear to be turning or repenting of his previous actions but he didn't change because he learned something new or unexpected. He didn't change because he didn't see this wickedness coming and was caught off guard and had to change his plans suddenly. No, he decreed that this should happen before he even created. And he did so for the display of his glory and for our instruction. And so the world that God had created in perfection has become evil because of man's sin. Man is continually wicked. Every imagination of his heart is wicked. And so God is now about to unmake what he had made. But then comes the most important verse in the entire chapter. The main point of chapter six is in verse eight. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. This is one of the most important subjects in all of Scripture, and this is the first mention of it, right here, the first time the word is used in Scripture. So what is grace, and why is it so important? Well, simply put, grace is unmerited favor. In other words, it means that we are saved because God treats us with a generous and abundant kindness that we don't deserve, In fact, we deserve judgment, but instead we receive his abundant kindness. So while the whole world is on the verge of being destroyed because of man's wickedness, God shows abundant and undeserved kindness to one man, Noah. So there's a series of contrasts that have been set up here. The Lord created and made. The Lord saw that what he had made was good Now the Lord sees that it has become evil, so he will unmake what he has made. He will judge the whole earth, but he shows grace to one man. Now the next verse says in verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So we have to be careful when reading this to note that Noah was outstanding among his peers, blameless in the midst of a corrupt world. But this is not why God favors him. Grace came first. Then we're told that Noah was perfect in his generation. This is a result of God's grace. John Calvin says this, By living uprightly, he kept himself pure from the common pollutions of the world, Whence, however, did he attain this integrity, but from the preventing grace of God. The commencement, therefore, of this favor was gratuitous mercy. Afterwards, the Lord, having once embraced him, retained him under his own hand, lest he should perish with the rest of the world. And so God's grace to Noah causes him to walk with God, as his great-grandfather Enoch had done. And this walking with God, remember, is to live in agreement with God and obedience to God. This is the idea expressed in the summary statement that you'll find on the back of your bulletin. It is the grace of God which enables and causes us to walk by faith and find salvation from the flood of God's wrath. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so we're told in the text that aside from this man, Noah, to whom God has extended preserving grace along with his immediate family, that in verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Because God is holy and just, sin must be punished. So God speaks to this man, Noah, warning him that he is going to destroy mankind in judgment for their wickedness. He instructs him to build an ark, a massive boat, in which he and his family, along with a number of animals, enough to repopulate the planet, will be preserved from the coming wrath. He instructs Noah how to build the ark, and makes a covenant of promise with Noah to save him and his family and the animals. And at the end of the chapter, we read in the very final verse Thus Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah obeyed God. So I want to explore this idea of grace and obedience. And I want to let the New Testament be our guide to understanding this chapter of history and the life of this man, Noah. I'm going to get ahead of Brian by a few weeks and go to the end of chapter one in the Confession Paragraph 9, where it says that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. In other words, if later Scripture tells us what an earlier Scripture means, then that is an infallible interpretation, one that is incapable of falling or being incorrect. Noah isn't mentioned much elsewhere in the Scriptures. He's mentioned a few times in a couple of genealogies. But aside from that, there are only two mentions of him in the Old Testament, both of which he is listed alongside Daniel and Job as examples of righteous men. But in the New Testament, he is mentioned three times, once in Hebrews and once in each of Peter's letters. 1 Peter 3, verse 2, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So there's a reference to verse 3 here in Genesis 6 showing that God's patience and long-suffering and waiting 120 years during which Noah was building the ark before God brings His judgment and wrath on the world. Then in Second Peter, we read this in chapter 2, verse 5, and he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a, gen- a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we can see that God not only spoke to Noah, but he speaks through Noah to the world. Noah preached to them, warning them of the coming judgment, exhorting them to righteousness, But the key verse to understanding the grace of God to Noah and Noah's life of obedience to God is found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse seven says this, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Now, the interesting thing is that this this verse doesn't mention grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this verse says, by faith, Noah. But we read in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is because of the unmerited favor of God, his grace bestowed on Noah, that Noah has the gift of faith. So Noah receives faith by the grace of God and he walks with God in that faith. So I want us to notice seven things quickly about the faith that Noah has. First, we are told concerning the faith of Noah that it is his faith is built on the hearing of the word of God. By faith, Noah warned of God. Genesis 6, verse 13, And God said to Noah, God spoke and he granted Noah faith in the hearing. This is always how God works. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17, our faith must be built on the foundation of God's word, which contains his warnings and his promises. Faith that is built on our feelings or what we imagine or wish God to be like is not faith, but foolishness. Faith must be rooted firmly in God's self-revelation to man in his word. Second, we're told that he was warned of God of things not seen as yet. Faith, we're told in Hebrews, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It isn't wishful thinking. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's taking God at his word, trusting the promises of the one who cannot lie. Think about this. God tells Noah to build a boat because a flood is coming. It hasn't even rained. They've never experienced a flood. They've never experienced a rainstorm. But by faith, Noah trusts God. He has no experience of the world that would lead him to believe there's going to be a global flood, but God said it, so he believes it. By faith, he prepares an ark. We walk by faith, not by sight. Noah didn't have to have an experience of a flood to believe that one was coming. God said so. Third, we note the character of Noah's faith. It has in it the wisdom of the fear of the Lord. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Faith believes not only the promises of God, but also the threatenings and the warnings. Hear what Mr. Spurgeon had to say. He who does not believe that God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through the atoning blood. He who does not believe that God will cast unbelievers into hell will not be sure that he will take believers to heaven. If we doubt God's word about one thing, we shall have small confidence in it upon another thing. Since faith in God must treat all God's word alike, for the faith which accepts one word of God and rejects another is evidently not faith in God, but faith in our own judgment, faith in our own taste. God made Noah a gracious promise of salvation for him and his family in the ark, but God also warned him that a flood of wrath was coming in judgment on the world. And Noah believed. Had he not believed and feared and dreaded the coming judgment, why would he build the ark? If he didn't believe God would really destroy the whole world in a flood, there'd be no reason to build a big boat. There'd be no need to believe in the promise of salvation. The same is true for us today. If we don't believe that God will punish sinners in hell... What cause do we have to believe in a salvation from that punishment that is found by faith in Christ? Faith believes the threats as well as the promises, and that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fourth, we see that Noah's faith results in obedience. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared the ark. This is the evidence of Noah's faith But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Writes the Apostle James. This does not mean that works are part of our justification. Paul makes that clear. Our justification is by faith alone. But James writes, not of the justification of sinners, but of the justification of our claim to have faith. Living faith is accompanied by an obedience to the word of God upon which that faith is founded. As Arthur Pink noted, Abel had faith. How did he display it? By presenting to God the divinely preserved sacrifice. Enoch had faith. How did he manifest it? By walking with God. Noah had faith. How did he evidence it? By preparing the ark. All through Hebrews 11, by faith they did this. By faith they did that. Faith results in obedience. We see this in Genesis 6. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah's faith was proved true by his obedience to the word of God. What about our faith? Is there evidence of its genuineness? A faith which does not obey the word of God does not truly believe the word of God. Fifth, we see the temporal fruits of Noah's faith. By faith, Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house, God often honors the faith of a believer by bestowing a blessing on those the believer loves and cares for in this world. Noah had faith and his wife and children are saved. Rahab believes and her family is spared the destruction of Jericho. In Matthew 9, Jesus forgives a paralytic his sins. He forgives his sins and then heals him. And the text says he does it because of the faith of his friends. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said. Now, there's no guarantee here of temporal blessing. There are many examples in the scripture of those who had faith and suffered and died. Just read to the end of Hebrews chapter 11. But there are times when a believer's faith is rewarded with a blessing to those around them. Sixth, we see the testimony of Noah's faith. By faith, Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world. Again, we're told in Second Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Consider the fact that Genesis 6 tells us there is 120 years in which Noah is laboring to prepare the ark, to gather food, to prepare for this coming judgment If you told people today that a worldwide flood was coming that would destroy all life, how would they respond? They would laugh. They would mock you and ridicule you. Noah did that in an age that had never even seen a gentle rain. Can you imagine the reaction of those around him? He preaches to them coming judgment and wrath. God will wipe it all out in a global flood. For 120 years, Noah is preaching this message as he is building and preparing the ark. And while his faith in the warning and the promise of God resulted in the salvation of his family, their unbelief resulted in their condemnation and destruction. The same holds true throughout history, even today. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The world is condemned and without excuse. Not only do they have the testimony of creation itself, as Paul explains in Romans 1, but they have the witness of the faith of believers demonstrated by our obedience to God and proclaimed in the preaching of His Word. And their continued disbelief will result in their destruction. And finally, we see the reward of Noah's faith. By faith, Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith, Noah became an heir of righteousness which was not his own. We're told Noah was a righteous man, but that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ imputed to him because of his belief. It is by standing clothed in the righteousness of Christ that we are justified in God's sight and made heirs together with him of all things. Faith may bring present blessings, it may not, but the grand reward of faith is our everlasting inheritance in the kingdom, not made with hands, whose builder is God. Noah was saved from the flood, but he did die, as we'll see in a few weeks Even the patriarchs who entered the promised land were still only pilgrims. Hebrews 11 tells us these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. Now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And for you, if by grace you have faith in the finished work of Christ, then you, along with Noah, have become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ of all things. It is the grace of God which enables and causes us to walk by faith and to find salvation from coming judgment. In Noah's day, that judgment would take the form of a flood. In our day... At the end of the age, it will take a different form, but that judgment will come on the whole world and every knee will bow, either in faith and salvation or in condemnation and judgment. Let's pray.